Also, while we're doing reminders, if you haven't turned your cell phone off, go ahead and do that. Every now and then, it's good to remind, remind ourselves of doing that just to avoid any kind of interruption later. For those of you who are not fidgeting with your phones, you can open up to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, we're going to pick up at verse 24, and we'll read through verse 28. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. A little bit later, after, uh, after communion, we'll spend a little bit more time in Ezekiel, this time in chapter 37. So most of our morning is going to be in this Old Testament book. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. This is what the Lord says. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. The group of people who are hearing this statement are hearing this word from the Lord through Ezekiel have already suffered from the consequences of their sin. Israel's long history of disobedience and rebellion and stubbornness and hard-heartedness had finally exhausted the Lord's patience And as a result of that, the Lord had turned to discipline to judge his people for their sin. And Ezekiel is writing to a group of people who are suffering part of the consequences of that judgment, namely that they had been taken from their homeland and put in exile in the land of Babylon. Exile is a big theme that you have running through the Old Testament. It's one of the ultimate consequences of sin. All the way back starting in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. One of the reasons why we know that the sin of Adam and Eve is, was so significant is because as a result of their sin, they are exiled from the Garden. They are sent out and separated from the land, from the home that God has created for them and separated in some significant degree, even from the presence of God. And so you see something like a repeat of that going on here with Israel as a nation. Because of their sin, they have been exiled from the land that God had prepared for them. And in a significant way, exiled, estranged from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord is talking about a time when He will come and when He will reverse all of the curses 
that have been brought on his people. If you read earlier in Ezekiel 36, he makes it very clear. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it because my name is attached to you. When my people wallow around in sin, and when they suffer the consequences of their sin, it makes me look weak. It makes me look small, and I will not allow my reputation to be dragged through the mud. And so because of that, the Lord says, out of a sheer act of grace and mercy, to show how different I am from all the other gods, to show how powerful I am, to show how loving and kind I am, I will come and I will undo the mess that you have made. And this portion that we read in Ezekiel 36 is part of what the Lord has promised to do for his people. We want to point out, uh, as we lead into uh, this time of communion, we want to point out three things that the Lord says in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. Notice everything that is said to happen here is going to happen because the Lord is going to do it. You have the, the statement over and over again, I will do this and I will do that. He's the primary actor, the mover in this promise. And so we read that when he brings them back, one of the things that they can anticipate or look forward to in verse 25 is that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Promise number one. He promises to take a people who have been dirtied and sullied by their own sin, what they chose for themselves, what they deserve to get. He promises to take those dirty, filthy people that he has put down in the dust as a fair act of judgment. And he says, I will come and pick you up and I will clean you. All of the filth all of the dirt, all of the contaminants that you have brought on yourself, you are not able to clean. I can and I will. He will clean them and cleanse them from all of their evil ways, from all of their sin. He will even cleanse them from their idols, which means in part not just that he's going to take away the little figurines or the statues, but I think ultimately what he's getting at is my cleaning of you, my cleansing of you will be so thorough that I'm going to wash away even the idolatrous desires that you have to chase after other people and other things, to make someone or something else God when only I can be God. Understand that when he says this, I will cleanse you, he is saying this to a people who have already been made dirty. He is saying this to people who are already suffering the consequences of sin. Number two, after the statement about cleansing, he says in verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give, you a, and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If God were to, were to gather his people and were to wash them thoroughly and clean them up 
and then send them on their way, inevitably, you'd be right back where you started from. Because the problem with Israel, the problem with us, the problem with all of humanity is not just simply that we do bad things. It's not just simply that we do evil things, but we do bad, evil things because we love bad and evil things. There is something wrong and twisted with our hearts. The biggest problem that we face is immaterial. It's something you can't grab hold of with your hands. It's the inner working in our heart and spirit. And so the Lord says, I will pick you up, I will clean you, and then... I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, which means that all of the the filthiness and the dirtiness that has brought about these consequences, this judgment, I'm going to attack it at the root. Your heart that led you into these sinful acts and these idolatrous ways, I'm going to totally remove that heart and I'm going to give you a completely new one. The implication being... That when that happens, one of the things that God now has done for his people in making them new is that not only has he cleaned them, but he has given them new desires, new impulses, rather than desiring evil, rather than wanting sin, he's going to give them a heart and a spirit that loves righteousness. That even though... They may not pursue righteousness perfectly. They have a heart that wants to go in that direction. By the way, let me me add one other thing in here. The The other significant feature of this new heart, being contrasted with a heart of stone, you had a heart of stone, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, is that a heart of flesh is now able to be wounded by conviction. The reason that it's important to bring that to mind is because when we come to days like today, and when we engage in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it can be very easy to sort of just pile on. I've messed up here, I've messed up there, nothing is ever going to change. You feel unworthy, you feel guilty. And at times that begins to morph in very quickly into self-condemnation. But listen, listen, the fact that your heart can be wounded, the fact that you can feel conviction over sin, that is a gift. That is a gift of God to a stone-hearted people. That he gives them a heart that wants to do his will, and feels the pangs of conviction when they don't. Edgewood, don't run from that. When you feel the weight of conviction, do not try to bury it. Don't try to suppress it. Don't try to hide it. Recognize that as God's kindness towards you to draw you closer to him, to run to your merciful and sympathetic high priest to find grace and mercy in your time of need. And then number three, he'll clean you, he'll give you a new heart and spirit. And then third, he says, 
in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. It is, it's a significant thing to have a heart that now wants what God wants and to have a heart that's growing in that likeness gradually, progressively. It's another thing altogether, not just simply to want the good things or to want the right things, but to have the ability to do good things and to do right things, right? I mean, there are plenty of things, on a much lesser scale, plenty of things that we may want that we are totally incapable of achieving, right? I want to be a pro athlete. It's not in the cards, no matter how much I may want it, right? That kind of a thing. That's what we're talking about. For the Lord to give his people a new heart and a new spirit means that they will have now new desires that are right and good. But even still, he goes a step beyond and says, in addition to those new desires and those new inclinations, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you, I will enable you to do what your heart now wants to do when it's in tune with mine. This is, this is what we're celebrating. This is what we're reminding ourselves of when we come to observing the Lord's Supper. We're reminding ourselves that God rescued and redeemed a people for himself, for his fame and for his honor, and that he rescued and redeemed a people who were already down in the dirt, who were already dirty and filthy and helpless and could do no good thing to save themselves, and that through the work of his son, he has done all of this for us. He has cleaned us. He has given us a new heart that desires the good and hurts when the good is not found. And he has given us his spirit so that all that he calls us to do, he then enables us to do as well. All of this is from him. None of it comes from us. So one of the ways then to think about what we do here this morning is to think of the Lord's table as this covenant meal. The Lord has provided this. And because the Lord is the one who invites us to come in and to sit and to dine and to feed with him, it's all on him to provide everything that's needed for the meal, right? If you invite someone over to your home, you don't invite them over and then give them the grocery list of what they need to buy. You say, come, sit, eat. Let's enjoy fellowship with one another. Let's enjoy one another's company. I'll take care of all the food. Don't worry about it. You just come. And that's exactly what God has done through his son. Every single thing that we need, everything that we need to be nourished and fed, he has provided for us at no cost. And so when we come this morning and when we partake of these elements, we're reminding ourselves when we taste the bread and when we drink from the cup, we're reminding ourselves of how much has been given to us and given to us freely and fully. Bow with me in prayer.
Father, keep us from presuming upon your grace. Keep us from the notion or the sense that we come even this morning, even at this particular moment in time, that we come in our own righteousness. We do not come in our own righteousness, but we come simply on the basis of your numerous and great mercies. If it depended on our righteousness, Father, we wouldn't even be worthy to gather the crumbs underneath the table. But we come knowing that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are full of compassion, that you are gracious, that you are slow to anger, and that you abound in loving kindness and in faithfulness. And so we ask that you would give us the ability in this moment in time to feed on Christ, to find our souls nourished, to find our hearts renewed, and to find this continual cleansing of our hearts and minds through the blood of Christ. We pray this confidently because we are your people and you are our God. We have been united to your Son, and we pray all this through his name. Amen. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus, before his death, had gathered together with his disciples that he had bread and wine, and that as he was seated with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this bread is my body given for you. And then that he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant which is offered up, which is given in my blood. So, if you have been joined to Christ by faith... This meal is for you as a reminder, as a promise, as a foreshadowing, not just of what we already enjoy, but even the greater blessings that we anticipate in the future. But precisely because this is a covenant meal that's found only in union with Christ, we would simply ask this. If you're here with us today, if you're, if you're a guest of visitor, even if you're a long-standing attender of Edgewood, and you have not been joined to Christ by faith, we would ask that you would respectfully refrain from participating in this, not because we want to shut you out, but because this is something special to us as God's people. And then we would say that everything that's offered here is offered to you as well. That all of the forgiveness, all of the grace, all of the mercy, the cleaning, the new heart, the new spirit, all of that can be yours today simply by trusting that God gives it to those who come to him by the work of his son. So I'm going to ask our deacons and elders to come and to stand at their stations now. As we begin to move through the elements, we'll have men move up row by row through each section, dismissing one row at a time. If you'll come to the station in front of your section of pews, they'll hand you a piece of bread, which you then will dip into the cup. You can partake of the, of the bread and the juice. We would encourage you to do it prayerfully, reflect, uh, reflectively, 
Uh, when you return to your seat, you're welcome to continue to, to pray and to think and to meditate on this new covenant that we enjoy or to sing along with Andy and the, and the rest of the praise team. Uh, but please make this a very respectful and sober time of reflection as we now move into communion. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for uh, his body being broken and bruised so that we could made whole, so that we could be healed. May we continue to feed on him so that our hearts are renewed on a daily basis, so that our minds are made new. Thank you for the blood of your son that shows that his death was a full vicarious death, was full and sufficient. And to see that we are sealed in this new covenant by the very blood of the eternal son. We thank you that because of that, we can be utterly confident that you will take all those who are yours and bring us safely to the end, to that last final great day of our salvation. You are faithful because you have promised and you will bring this all to pass. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. If you're still in Ezekiel, you want to be in chapter 37 right now. We came off of uh, Easter Sunday last week. We celebrate the resurrection of God's Son bodily from the grave. It's oftentimes easy to, uh, to put the focus there on the resurrection of Christ and then to, to miss out on the truth that God is still raising people from the dead. He does not do it physically yet, but he will. That's coming. But what we see in God's word happening to Jesus in his physical body is what he does with us in the inner man. He takes dead, rotting corpses and he raises us up to new life. What we want to ask today in the brief time that we have left is, number one, how does he do that? And number two, why is that so significant? Why should that be so encouraging or meaningful to us? So in Ezekiel 37, you follow along with me as we read. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Keep in mind that just like we said earlier in the verses that we read from chapter 36, this is being delivered to a people who are already suffering the consequences of their sin and disobedience. They are already in the midst of God's judgment. And it's when they are at their lowest point that these words come to them. Ezekiel 37, verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. They had been there for a while, in other words. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, And the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, take now the reading, the speaking, the thinking of your words, and by the power of your Spirit, cause them to be active and alive in your people here this morning. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring comfort where comfort is needed. May your word bear fruit in this time today. Amen. God is still raising the dead. God brings the dead back to life on a regular basis. We don't always see it, but He does it. It's interesting, just in terms of the flow of Ezekiel in the context, that this vision of the valley of the dry bones comes on the heels of all of these great promises of restoration that God makes in chapter 35 and in chapter 36. One of the things that I find so encouraging in terms of where this vision is situated is that it is so relevant and so applicable to me and to you because just like Israel in the Old Testament, God's people today have unbelievable promises, some of which we have already begun to taste, some of which we have not begun to taste. But just like in chapter 36, unbelievable promises spoken to them, and yet 
in light of what's said in chapter 37, what is the attitude and the disposition of the people even in hearing these things? Do they jump and shout for joy? Oh, the Lord is going to do this for us. No. The people say, we are dead and our hope has been cut off. You ever been there? You ever, you ever thought about the fact or, or been in those places where, in spite of all of the promises that you see in Scripture, in spite of all the preaching, in spite of all of this and all of that, you still, just like Old Testament Israel, come and say, but it's too late for me. I'm too far dead. I'm too far gone. There's no hope left. If God is who he says he is, if God has in fact raised his own son from the dead, then we have to say that there is never a point in time where anyone is so dead that they can't be raised up again. True? How does he do it? How does he raise people back up? Two ways that you see in this passage, and they work hand in hand. Number one, or if you're looking at sermon notes, small letter A, I think. First, he does it by his word. If we, if we play along with or follow along with the vision that we have in Ezekiel 37, it's worth noting that there is no physical work involved in putting the bones back together, in causing them to stand up, in putting sinews and tendons and muscle and even skin on them. There is no one who does that work. How, how does that happen in the vision? Or maybe we should say, wait, yeah, how do you answer that? How does it happen? Wait, maybe we should say, when does it happen? As Ezekiel was prophesying, as he was speaking words, as he was declaring the word of the Lord over a boneyard, bones begin to rattle and shake and bones start to fuse together. This is no ordinary word. This word, when it is spoken, is effective to the point that it actually has the ability to create or recreate on its own without any assistance. Isn't that what we see in Scripture all over the place? Starting all the way back at the beginning in Genesis 1, there is nothing that exists except for God. You can't even conceive of nothing existing. You can't even conceive of that. How does something come out of nothing? In Genesis 1, how? He speaks, and God said, let there be. And God speaking causes it to be. His word creates something out of nothing. You can't get any more powerful than that. When Jesus is walking the earth during the days of his earthly ministry, 
and he falls asleep in the boat, and the storm comes, and his disciples think, this is it, we're all going to drown, and they wake Jesus up. What does Jesus do to stop the storm? He speaks to wind and to water. You ever tried speaking to wind and water? Don't. (laughs) Not only will you not get the same results, people will start to look at you funny. You don't talk to wind and water because wind and water don't hear what you're saying. They are inanimate. There is no way for them to respond. And yet, Jesus speaks words to wind and water, and they obey. Isn't that what the disciples say? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then later on in John 11, Lazarus is dead. How does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Do you do chest compressions, mouth to mouth? He stands outside of the tomb and he calls to a corpse, Lazarus, come out. Why do you talk to a corpse? Corpse can't hear you. Corpse can't speak. Corpse can't do anything. Unless the words that are spoken carry with them the very power to do what the words are telling the corpse to do. You get that? The word itself is the power, is the force to enable a dead man to rise again. The dead man doesn't have to do anything. It's the words that are doing all the work. And as you go further into the New Testament, you see this same thing being said even about us. In 1 Peter, Peter says that we were born again, not of anything that is corruptible, but by the imperishable seed of God's Word. Paul says it's the gospel, the good news, it's a message, it's a word that is spoken, that is preached, that is the power to salvation. How does God raise people from the dead? He does it through words, invisible words. But just so that we don't think that these words are some sort of magic incantation or some sort of weird mystical chant. Here's the other part that goes with it. He raises the dead by his words and second, by his spirit. It's interesting to note that when these bones are put back together, And when they're fully formed, are they alive yet? No. They have everything that they need. All of the functioning parts, all of the bones, all of everything is perfectly connected. Everything has been reconstructed, recreated. But we're told, but they had no breath in them. Just like... In the creation of Adam, God breathes in to his nostrils and man becomes a living soul. In Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of God enters into these bodies and makes them alive. 
You have to have both of these. God does not work by His Spirit apart from His Word. Disabuse yourself of that notion. However, or we would say, and, God also does not work through His Word apart from His Spirit. You have to have both. Or you may have something that looks good, but ultimately it's still not alive. This is, this is a necessary reminder for me, for you, for a church like Edgewood, where, where we love to hear the Word preached and taught. Listen, because, here's, here's one of the reasons why it's necessary, it's a necessary warning, because we can come in and we can sit, gather together, listening to the words of God being spoken and being preached to us, and think that that is what God is intending to do, just the mere hearing, and it can be totally devoid of any work of the Spirit. And you walk out the back doors and absolutely nothing has happened. But you look good while you're sitting. You look good while you're talking. You look like you're put together, but you got no breath. You got nothing that's animating the Word of God in your heart and mind to give you life. A church can be organized and put together in any number of ways that, that facilitate the growth of the body. And it doesn't matter what size the membership is, if the Word of God is not being brought to bear by the power of the Spirit, it all is empty. But the other reason this is important, it's a warning, it's also an encouragement, is because it's also possible for us to come in here and to think that, well, this Sunday is just going to be like last Sunday and like the Sunday before that, and that's, you know, this is just what we do. We sit here and blah, 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 blah. We hear a guy talk a lot and a bunch of words and do not, do not underestimate what happens on a weekly basis in the preaching of God's Word. God's Word creates life. It brings something out of nothing. God's Word raises the dead. God's Word gives new hearts and new minds as the Spirit comes in and makes the Word effective. Lives are changed here when the Word of God is preached. Do not think lightly of what happens here on Sunday morning. Do not think lightly of what you're doing when you gather together, either on Sunday morning or in smaller groups, and you open up the Word of God. Do not think lightly of the Word of God as His Spirit uses it. Parents, as a parent walking through all the craziness and confusion that comes with kids, let me just say a brief word to you. One of, one of the things that I find so encouraging about this, you trying to get your kids to soak in the Word a lot of times looks like this, where you're, like, you feel like you're just trying to force feed Scripture to them, right? So when you say, okay, come on, so we're going we're gonna to read a Bible story, and you get the, you get what kind of response? Jumping up and down for joy, 
No, you've interrupted them. It's a great burden. It's a great injustice. And you sit there thinking, what in the world am I doing? Right, listen, parents. Not, not because I'm the authority on this, but because this is what God has, has shown us in His Word. What's happening in those times and what's happening when your kids go to Sunday school or when they're in Praiseville or when they're sitting with you in the pew, what's happening is, is that the Word of God may, in fact, be putting pieces together that you can't see. Your little cute angelic creature is a sinner in desperate need of grace, just like you are. And through the preaching of the Word, parts are being put together, and all it's waiting for is for the Spirit of God to come and infuse it and to make it click. So, how often are you going to give the Word to your children? Ten times? Twenty times? Thirty? A hundred? Before you give up on it. You give as long as you can until the Spirit flips the switch. It's the Word of God working with this Spirit that gives life. Here's why all this is important. We need to do this in, in fairly short order. This is number two. Because God raises the dead through His Word working with His Spirit, number two, we have a hope that never dies. What did, back up, the reason that we have a hope that never dies is in part because the working of His Word by His Spirit is not limited by our weakness. Right? What, did, what did the bones have to offer in the vision? Nothing. They weren't even organized. Couldn't even do that much. What does Lazarus have to offer three, four days in? Nothing. What do you have to offer? We have nothing to offer. Right? So we, we fall into the mindset like Israel, oh, it's too late, we're too dead, our hope is cut off. And everything in this vision is telling you, no, it's never too dead for a God who raises the dead. Because His Word and His Spirit do not depend on your weakness. If anything, it works in spite of your weakness and because of it. Parents, when you pray for your children, pray for them persistently. Even when it looks like it's a lost cause. Because God raises the dead. Amen. Spouses, pray for your mate. Even when it looks like they're dead, or the marriage is dead, or fill in the blank, right? Why? Because God raises the dead. And ultimately what this means is that because His Word 
driven by his spirit, is not limited by our weakness. It also means that whatever promises we don't see in the here and now, that doesn't mean that our hope has been exhausted. His work is not defeated by death. His work is not defeated by death. So we just, we just passed the mark, 50 years since the death of Martin Luther King. How's all this working out? 50 years on. Will we reach perfect new man racial harmony in the next 20 years? Next 50? Will you live to see it? Well, not now, maybe, but one day you will. You know why? Because there's coming a time in the future when God will speak again and he will raise the dead up on a massive scale. And he will recreate, remake all of this broken, mixed up world. And then every tribe, language, tongue, every ethnic group is going to live together in perfect harmony. You'll see it. Even if you die without seeing it, your hope is not dead. It's just on the other horizon. Some of you pray for healings for your family members, terminal illnesses, genetic defects. They suffer the consequences of this broken world and this broken creation. God is perfectly capable of raising weak, marred, physical bodies. He can do that. Many times he doesn't. Does that mean that your hope is dead? Far from it. Because there's coming a day when the word of God will go forth again, and even those who did not receive rest and comfort from the burden of a broken body are going to be raised to live in perfect bodies again. Creation itself will bend to the will of their creator and will follow in the example of us as we're raised to new life. This is the God we worship. This is the God that we serve. We serve a God and worship a God by faith. We follow him completely confident that all that the Lord has spoken will certainly come to pass. That in the same way that he raised his son from the dead, by the, by the method, by the message of his word with the infusing power of his Holy Spirit that even now dead men and dead women and dead children are brought to life and that even when we go down to the grave our hope is not buried with us it just simply is waiting for those last final words that's going to bring all of this back up in perfection and in renewal and without any ending and we'll spend year after year after year, age after age, epic after epic, astounded at what words can do. Let's pray.
Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. To believe because of what you have done and what you have said, that invisible words and an invisible spirit bring new realities into existence where formerly there was nothing. That your word and your spirit brings life out of death. We pray that for this church. We pray that for your church across this nation and across the globe, that you would be faithful and kind to build us up by your word through the ministry of your spirit. In whatever relationship we may, uh, we may exist in right now, whether as parents or as spouses, as widows or widowers, Father, we pray that our encouragement our hope would constantly be found in turning to your word over and over again and just hearing in our minds and our hearts, thus says the Lord. We want to see your word brought to life by your spirit. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.